recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. Get a Grip Management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Presented by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and of course, the International Dark Sky Association. This is Starving for Darkness. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Starving for Darkness podcast with Jane Slade and Michael Colligan. Before we get into it, I want to tell you quickly about the magicians. That's right. The magicians down at Evluma. Go to evluma.com. Greg, they're rethinking LED in all directions. And here's a perfect example is a lot of people have these cob, corn cob LED bulbs. They have one too, but very different from everyone else. First of all, it's small profile which is important, so you, need, you can get yeah. it to fit in the fixture. It's got 20 kV, 10 kV surge protection. A lot of them have half that or less, so that means it's going to last, yeah. and your warranty on it. And it's mm-hmm. 2K to 5K in color temps, so it's got the whole range, everything you need. Let's keep then, it low, though, folks. That, Let's keep it low. Keep it low. You've got wireless dimming capability with your Connect LED Bluetooth app that you can go right into it. And then the final thing i got to touch is the photo control fail safe. Now, that's actually firmware built into the bulb itself. So if your photocell goes out, the bulb learns over time how the photocell operated and continues to operate as though the photocell is working. Never need to worry about that thing again. That's hitting you with a lot of magic right there. Rethinking LED in all directions. Go to evluma.com. That's evluma.com. Now, Starving for Darkness. Welcome to Starving for Darkness, Jim Benya. Hi. How you two how you two doing this morning? <laughs> doing good. Doing very well. Very pleased to have you on the show. Thank Actually, you. we like to start Starving for Darkness with the same question for every guest, which is please tell us about an experience, a dark sky experience for you that was profound, that made you feel human, that made you feel like there was something bigger and um that really left an indelible mark for you i have had so many i was a uh, i was a boy scout an eagle scout a uh, order of the arrow ordeal member which is about the highest rank in boy scouts you can get to uh, and it was uh, it meant a lot to me it really did and the night the night sky meant a lot to me as a Boy Scout. Mm. I got my astronomy merit badge. I was really into astronomy in like second grade. You know, I knew all the planets. And to be able to look up and see it was was amazing. Mm. To be able to look up and see it through a telescope was even more amazing. And to learn to mm. navigate, to be able to walk around through the forest at night and to be able to see from starlight was something I learned to do you know, then as well. So to me, it's uh, being that close to nature and, and that close to the heavens is has always been you know pretty important. Um, I'll tell you one experience though. I mean, I've had I've had many. I've been to observatories. I've you know been in the darkest sky places. Some of them in, in the world. But I remember Deborah and I uh, heading up into. Uh, into northern Wisconsin, and uh, we were we were up on in Door County, and we were just taking a little break. I'd, I'd been working in Wisconsin. She came up to join me, and we decided to rent a house up in Door County and uh, spend some time there. And uh, what was really cool about that was one night we were lying out. Door County, just so that you know, is on a tip of, mm-hmm. of land that goes up north out of Green Bay. So you're a long, and you're sticking out into Lake Michigan. So you're a long way from, uh, from uh, you know, urban areas. And we were lying back just, you know, on the ground looking up at night. And she said, what's all that smoke in the air? <laughs> I, yeah. I said, it's sure. the Milky Way. Yeah, sure. <gasps> mm-hmm. Cause she never mm-hmm. really thought about that, you know? 
And mm-hmm. you look at photographs of uh, power outages uh, are amazing because mm-hmm. whole cities will suddenly have no light, and you can see that you can see, <laughs> you sure. know, Milky Way. But, oh my goodness, has that always been there? Yeah. The answer is yes. Yes, it has. We just have created so much light pollution; it's it's terrible. Um, yeah. I've, I've had the pleasure of working in a number of our national parks. Um, Yosemite probably being the, the most, maybe one of the most memorable, but equally with the Grand Canyon. Um, and in both cases, you you do see the Milky Way, not quite as well as, as I'd like, because there's even light pollution nearby. But um, mm-hmm. Grand Canyon is pretty spectacular that to, to be standing, looking into the Grand Canyon, seeing it by starlight, and then looking up. So, so all so of that... Me is left a you know major impression. For the benefit, that's okay. You're going good. For the benefit of the listeners, though, so Jim Benny is a very has been I would say wrestling with this industry for his whole career. Um, I I don't know any other way to put it because you're a lighting designer. Um, you know, you're you're in terms of designing buildings, the list is endless in terms of not endless, Mm. but there's a you've done a lot of great work practically in the lighting business in terms of specifying and, and and that sort of thing but i want you to tell the listeners right now specifically how your career this wrestling with the industry in terms of regulations ordinances and if you could take that sort of into the, your experience with the international dark sky association and that sort of angle to it tell us a little bit about jim benya well specifically about uh, international dark sky association or ida uh, I was introduced to, you know, there's there's another lighting designer who's who's had a lot of passion for night sky, a dear friend of mine is Nancy Clanton. And Nancy introduced me to Dr. David Crawford, uh, the founder of IDA, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 1991. And I immediately took to Dave. I, he's a charismatic, wonderful guy. Um, but uh, I ultimately got Daved we call it, about 10 years later when he convinced me that I had to join the, uh, the board of directors of IDA. And he said, I want you to come in for one reason, because you have more knowledge and experience about codes and standards than anybody else I've ever met. And he said, we need a lighting, a model lighting ordinance. And that was what he, uh, that was what he told me. And I said, okay, I'll do it which started 14 years on the board of directors. It was a pretty interesting, tumultuous time. At first, it was a lot of fun. Uh, Later years, it got to be hard because of economics and other things. But um, I I was, I started the IDA um, Model Lighting Ordinance Committee. Uh, It was a little rough going at first because there's a lot of people out there who are dark sky advocates who think they know how to write an ordinance. They don't, but they want to. And uh, they have strong opinions, many of them. And I had to deal with that at first. Dave said, don't worry about it, just get the job done, which was cool. Um, We did. And then along about 2005 or 2006, right in there, um, I was working on this. We had had some groundwork done by this time. And it takes a while. I, I talked to Nancy again, and I talked her into meeting me in Chicago, and we walked into the IES Board of Directors meeting, and we said, we want to talk to you. And at that one meeting, because what we knew was going on was the IES was going to create its own uh, you know, anti-light pollution group, anti-light pollution committee. And both of us knew, and both of us are fellows of IES, both of us knew the people who were going to be on there weren't going to do a good job for many, many reasons. And so we walked in and said, why don't we do this together, IDA and IES? And in Mm -hmm. one 40-minute session, the IES went from creating its own standards of some kind to joining IDA in doing the MLO. 40 minutes, we completely changed the board of directors. It was a phenomenal moment. And we were very excited. And the model lighting ordinance was born in 2011. And it's Mm -hmm. still uh, 
prescient document. It's still a very valuable foundation. We did, we did several things that I'm extraordinarily proud of. Uh, we set the lighting zone system, which is used yes. now in state in California, as well as other places. We, well, we didn't exactly create it. What we did was we improved it. It had been created by CIE, and IES sort of half adapted it. But we, f we made it practical. <clears throat> and um, that was one thing we did. The other thing we did that was, I think, really great is we came up with uh, improvements to IES TM15, Technical Memorandum 15. TM15 created a, you know, uh, a system for evaluating the light emissions out of a luminaire uh, relative to photometric zones, so different type of zone. You know, there was the high light, the low light, that kind of stuff. And we looked at it, we said, it doesn't work very well. Uh, it had been developed by the Lighting Research Center, but it missed a couple of things. And so we improved mm -hmm. it, and it resulted in TM1511, which to this day is the other major rating we came up with. But we did one other thing that had never been done before. We invented the bug system. And yes, I'm bug I aimed the bug system. I, I forced, as committee chair, I sort of forced all that to come together. I pushed everybody a little bit. And we came up, because the biggest problem with academia is academia doesn't see the world as a world of standards and regulations the same way practitioners do. I said, we have to have you know, something that can be codified into laws and standards and things like that. And we have to have a, a metric. You can't just say, well, here's how you do this, here's how you do that. No, we have to have metrics so people can meet something. What is, the, is the bug an acronym? Is it an acronym, bug? Yeah, it's, it stands for backlight, uplight, glare. Okay. All right. Three characteristics. And one of the other things that a lot of people don't know about bug is that bug is not as academically correct. It is a consensus standard. We don't have hard science behind it. We do. I mean, you know, to a certain extent, photometrically we do. But we don't have, it's, it's not a... Um, what I would call something that, you know, we've got this absolute, you know, 100-page paper and all this kind of stuff. It was a consensus of, of experts. That was pretty much arranged very cleverly by Nancy, uh, Naomi Miller, uh, Cheryl English. You know, there were, there were three primary suspects in putting that thing together. And it, it, it worked so well that here we are 10 years later, it's still a standard. That everybody uses so we're you know pat ourselves on the back for that one um i would agree that jim that that is well well used the bug ratings i i say backwards upwards you said backlight uplight um so thank you for backlight, correcting that. Glare. The idea, yeah and the idea is that yeah. you tailor the backlight uplight glare to and, and the, the secret behind bug is that the bug system um being a consensus what happened is a group of experts, including those folks and the rest of members of the committee, uh, including yours truly, we, we picked out luminaires that we considered to be appropriate, expertly picked, but appropriate for certain applications, which is how we were able to set the values, the limit values for each of the mm. bug ratings. So, for example, something that's appropriate for lighting zone two you, the maximum uh, backlight you can have is a certain number of lumens. The maximum uplight is a certain number of lumens. And the maximum uh, you know, glare was, was the tough one. But glare turned out to be pretty much a function of the total lumens of the light source. In other words, how bright was it? The whole thing worked out marvelously well. And I, you know, I, that, that group of, of team members were the, were the key ones who put it together. Tell me though, tell me, Jim, the model lighting ordinance. I have, to, I have to ask a question about this because, so this is this law anywhere? Like, is there is this state law in California? Is it federal law, or is it just a recommended best practice? It's a recommended best practice at this point. One of the things we have learned since we wrote it is that uh, communities aren't prepared to adopt something 
quite this technical or complete. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of, you know, they look at it and say, oh, well, nobody can do this. You know, well, that's not true, but it, it, it didn't succeed in getting wide adoption. However, it's been successful at being partially adopted. Sure. Is it, okay. is it, do you think it needs to be revised now with the, in the age of LED? Um, with the... It needs modernization. But and in terms I of it, its principles are still sound. Nobody, nobody's come up with a good argument why they're not. Okay. They've had 10 years or more. I have heard that the performance method, one of the problems is that it, which is one of the more complex ways of going through the model lighting ordinance, but that one of the issues is that it's possible to overlight because of all of the allowances. And so the caveat is to always have a lighting expert if you're going that route rather than say the parking space method. Um, but I, I would say that in general, um, to your point, Jim, one of the issues has been that um, it's overwhelming when a, a lay person reads the model lighting ordinance because um, people don't know the difference between a candela, a lumen and a foot candle. And you know, once you started to get into the complexity of it, then you know it started it starts to feel like oh well we can't do this and how would we do this and then what about safety and all those arguments pop up so um <laughs> so um it it can be overwhelming just because i think uh i always say you know i can drive my car but i couldn't fix it and lighting's the same way is that most people experience every day but they actually don't know the complexity of it and i think the model lighting ordinance is a rude awakening for some in the complexity of lighting um, well, I want to point why. out here, Thank I you. have your book right I here. I saw that. I went, what's that doing there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I honestly, I did. I learned that you wrote it today, um, but this is my textbook. There's actually a coffee stain right here from about 2007. <laughs> it was the required lighting course. Um, I did not know I was headed towards the lighting industry. Um, this was taught by Glenn Hine Miller and Keith Yancey, uh, my lighting course. And um, so I, I was like, better. oh, my God, I have that book. Those two guys are fantastic. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're very They lucky. are fantastic. Yeah. There's, there's well, very few places where you can get that quality of lighting class and education. Very few places. Yes. Good, well, good I feel you. lucky. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I kind of want to back up from the MLO for a second. Um, sure. Because... I, I want to get into, you have your 40 minute conversation that you're, you're talking about where, you know, suddenly a decision got made um, and consensus is so hard to come by. And uh, I always say with the dark sky movement, uh, it's, it's awareness that is really the battle because if people knew they would not be so uh, willing to illuminate at night um, for no need. And so we really just need to get the awareness out there. So the MLO, you had that moment, but then it still isn't really a full answer. So my question for you is, what are your thoughts about the current state of advocacy for dark skies across the different organizations like the IDA, the IES, the DLC? What are your thoughts of the organization of these groups currently and um, how they're faring? I, I've been doing a program for IES sections. I just did it for the Rocky Mountain section uh, the other day. And in that slide deck, I say 2020s are the decade of dark skies. This is the first time I have seen in my work in the field, which is like I say, is 21 years now. Uh, first time I've seen strong enthusiasm for it. This is the first time I've seen, you know, people suddenly say, we got to do this, uh, which is remarkable. And so I'm, I'm very happy to see all this enthusiasm. DLC is putting together a program where they will be able to uh, have a, a qualified products list, just like they do for energy efficiency, but it will be for dark skies. So consumers, engineers, architects, landscape architects, you know, who designs lighting? Everybody. Um, they'll have a place to go. 
And I love it because we've needed that. I've often said that the, the ordinary QPL of, of DLC is one of my favorite tools just for making sure a product is is quality product that's it's been vetted by somebody. You know, it's like the good good housekeeping good housekeeping seal of approval, which you may not have ever heard of, but was popular when I was a kid. Um, that all that stuff is coming together now. People are paying attention, but I think one of the one of the things that we, we've got a couple of of big humps we got to get over. And one of them has mm -hmm. to do with understanding spectrum, color temperature, and all that in this context. And, you know, I serve on the Luna committee with DLC. I brought up a new idea for the MLO that I think will help it. Because the MLO has been adopted in part in California. The MLO was always intended to be separate from the energy code, but in parallel with the energy code. So the energy code would restrict how much light you could put in the environment, and the MLO restricted other aspects of it. They were always intended to be, you know, uh, harmonious. So the, the way all this is headed right now, I see very positive because all the energy codes are restricting lighting according to lighting zone, thank goodness. It's part of California law. Now, the lighting zone system and is being used not only for uh, energy reasons, it's being used for environmental reasons. It's part of Title 24, Part 11, which is called Cal Green. So Cal Green does regulate according to the bug system and lighting zone, which is the core of the MLO. So did they adopt the MLO exactly? No. Did they adopt the core engine of it? Absolutely. I'm very excited about, very pleased with that. And that's been in, I mean, that's been part of Title 24 since, right, actually almost before the MLO was first published. So it's been there as long as the MLO has been public, uh, you know, publicly available. So we are making progress here and we're showing how it works, but we're also showing how it doesn't work. We're learning the things that have got to be done better. And I'm trying to feed that stuff back to IDA, to IES, to say, you know, we've got to rally around this. We're, we've learned a lot now. Let's take advantage of it. Um, we've also, California, a community can decide to do something different. In other words, they can decide to create a, an ordinance. And the city of Malibu created a lighting ordinance that they're enforcing, which is amazing in and of itself. But they decided to declare the entire community lighting zone one, which is, you know, one step above no lights allowed at all, which right. is phenomenal. Yeah. Okay? And they're enforcing it. So good things are starting to happen. It's taken maybe longer than we all would have liked, but at least people are starting to catch on to these things. So um, the, the lighting zones are, are trying to help it make, you know, helping to make it happen. Go ahead. Sorry. The lighting zones are such an important part of the MLO because it really asks people to assess where they are and where they want to go. And without that question, uh, which is really awareness creating, uh, people were just lighting, you know, with abandon. So I think that was a, a, agreed a very fundamental and successful part of the MLO. Um, Thank you. Now you are you are well known for your work in daylighting. And I want to talk to you about that. Um, one of uh, the books that I have on my shelf is um, Daylighting as Form Giver or, or Natural Light as Form Giver by Bill Lamb. I'm kind of butchering the name right now. It's, it's escaping me. It's the pressure of the moment. But you know what I'm talking <laughs> about. I and also... And Bill was a friend um, of mine. So yeah. Yes, yes. Um, now... There's also, I've heard you say this, this term, light as a drug. So talk to me about what daylighting is, how it impacts how we feel, um, and, and what the impact of light is as you see it on humans. Well, once we start getting too much into the drug side of things, you know, one of the reasons why uh, my partner, uh, Deborah, also my wife, 
one of the reasons why we're together is because she was probably one of the first people I met uh, in my life who I felt, you know, dealt with light as uh, as a drug, you know, if you want to think of it in those mm. terms, but was really uh, one of the first people to get involved with the physiology and with um, how it all works. And she blew me away, you know, with a presentation she did in 2008, when this was just starting to emerge in the mid 2000s. Mm. Um, and a lot of people, you know, went off and created products and ideas and stuff like that, that were very immature. Um, They're you know, kind of snake oil, if you will. Deborah was the only one who was really speaking and said, this is more complex, but it makes perfect sense how light affects living beings. And the first thing you have to understand, you know, is that the cycle, the daily cycle and the seasonal cycle, because our physiology and our reaction changes by the season. You ought to know that from living in the North Country, okay? And, uh, you know, you have a different attitude and different energy level in the winter than you do in the summer. So, Nature gives us signals as well, you know, as well as, you know, many other benefits of daylight, but it gives us signals to the body, you know, and the duration of the day, the, you know, the, the light levels, a lot of things. The other thing, you know, that I've learned from her is that the, the human body isn't like hair triggered, like you press, you press a button and you do one thing and you press a button, and you do another. These things are, they, they are built in. There's a built-in time clock that, mm -hmm. you know, regulates the body's physiology. Deborah and I did a program um, in, uh, in Europe in 2011 together where we literally, we call it a perfect circadian day, and we showed all the physio physiological impacts throughout the day and how the lighting was related to it through a 24-hour period. And it was a very successful program. Um, that we did at, you know, in Europe. And uh, then we repeated it uh, you know, later on here at, at UC Davis. Some individuals had us uh, do it here and they recorded it here. But the key thing about that program was you look at all the interactions and all the uh, physiological interactions, and you come to realize that the, it isn't just, you know, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna flash a blue light at you and you're gonna wake up doesn't work that way it's 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 not a, at all balance yeah it's a balance of things that are happening if something gets out of sequence for one day the system can ignore it pretty much all right the system is is designed to realize that there is a rhythm to the planet and things change more slowly you know uh day right. to day there's a little change in in the light levels, the time, and everything else. And our body goes with those. But if I flash a blue light at you, you're not going to wake up. Or if I flash a red light at you, you're not going to go to sleep. Well, anyway, I, I, I want to point I, I, I want to flash point one thing out. Answer your question. Can I answer your question? Oh, you want to speak? Yeah. I want to go back to your question. So what I believe is that if we design buildings with daylighting, we are... Mm -hmm taking full advantage of nature. It's not necessarily the color of the light. It's not always necessarily the intensity of light. It's just mm. the cycle of the light makes a lot of difference. We can improve it by improving the dynamic range of it by bringing in more daylight during the day in buildings. But I think if you design a daylighted building, the people will get the most benefit of their circadian systems by doing that. Everything else is an approximation or worse. Yes, and I so, wanna point out, um, and, and then I know Mike's jumping in um, with something here, but um, to the body clock thing, uh, you know, the suprachiasmatic nucleus in our brains is considered the master clock of our bodies. But you know, we don't just have one clock. We have our heart, which is on its own rhythm. You know, you see something that you enjoy, your heart palpitates. It's got its own rhythm. You smell popcorn, you get hungry. Your stomach has its own biological clock. You know, our, our organs have, uh, many of them have 
their own clocks. And so, as you say, one day out of sync, it's not going to be a big deal. But light at night is considered a carcinogen because over time, the desynchronization from the master clock is what creates malaise and dis-ease in the body system. And so that, I think, is uh, an important note for the listener who doesn't quite know about circadian rhythms, that, as you say, it's much more complex. We're not machines. Um, and there were a lot of um, installations in the, in the beginning that thought, you know, um, they actually thought if we shine 5,000K blue light on shift workers, that they would do better, they'd work harder. And in reality, these shift workers had to re-enter their daily lives, which were, you know, children and family running on the normal clock. Um, and the blue light only made it harder for them. So th right. that's just an example of, of really bad considerations when you think of the body as a machine and not a biological organism with many clocks. So that Agreed. would be, I, I totally agree that it's so complex. Okay. I think, so I Mike, think, I'm going to hand it to you. Have a great discussion, let me tell you. <laughs> okay, I'm not sure, I'm not sure clock is the right simile. I think it gives the wrong impression to people. Like, it, like, you know, I'm not sure that's the right sort of word to use as a metaphor for what's happening. There, there, there might be a better word, like rhythm and clocks don't work on a rhythm, Right. That's not what a clock is. So there's got to be something in between rith, something that that has a, a rhythmic function to it, but that controls things. We need a new word. Clock's not the right word. And it, I think it deceives well, it, people. It, the, the, the phrase body clock has been used for you know, decades. Um, and I agree with you, Michael. I mean, it's, it's the, the language... So this is this is well. Here, hang on, hand before you go any further. I'm gonna let you go further because I'm gonna get, I'm gonna throw something else in the mix. I think drug is an interesting word to use in the conversation because I think people need to be encouraged to get a dose of sunlight and a dose of darkness every day. You know, I think that that's a good word to use because it it signals to people like the non-lighting awareness people or advocates of dark sky that this is something that you need. It's not optional. You need darkness. You need natural daylight. And the best is to go outside. The second best is to have lots of windows and skylights and sun tunnels in your home or in your office or wherever. Right? So I think that the wording is very important because the wording will tell, will signal to non-dark sky, non-sophisticated lighting people what it is that we're talking about. And clock's not the right word for that. But I think drug is helpful because it indicates a dose. There. Now go, Jim. <laughs> Um, I suggest that you take the whole topic and get Deborah in here. Yeah, we're, we, she's coming on. She's coming on. Good. So, good. Yeah, so yeah, I've, I've been, I've, I've spent the last decade of my life with Deborah, uh, you know, designing, doing things together. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the things I've learned is how little I know about physiology. I never really studied it much. I didn't want to become a doctor or anything. And she knows it cold. So I, I'm careful uh, about saying things like, you know, that's the right term or the wrong term. I defer to her. The good thing is, is that I have her to work with. And it's, yeah, it's sure. been a great pleasure. It gives me confidence in the recommendations I'm making as a lighting designer and an engineer. Um, because I have her to bounce things off of. And, you know, mm -hmm. we want the International Illumination Design Award for the ASID headquarters, which is, to the best of my knowledge to this day, still the world's only lead platinum, well platinum, double platinum project. And it was done under well one, which is, you probably know, a really bad standard, um, particularly for lighting. Very, very difficult and very unnecessarily complex. They've simplified it with well two, I understand, for that reason. Um, we, we did it under well one and we did it with daylight. Mm. Okay. We, we had, it was a, it was an office building, a pretty standard office building, tenant space. We did it with daylight. Daylighting did the job. And so we could comfortably say we provided the best possible interior environment. The funny thing about it is when well came in to certify the space, 
they came in and they said, okay, close the blinds. Why? Well, because that's what we do. So they're, it's like they're saying the electric lighting system has got to provide the light. And we said, why? And we had a big, big argument. We won because mm. it is, after all, about the light, not about the electric light. Mm -hmm. But we are so, considering the fact that we had to have that battle in 2017, tells you how far we have to go. So for people to claim that they're creating a circadian friendly building or whatever, um, I'm pretty I'm pretty critical of what that means. If it's done with daylight, it's and it's done well with daylight, it's going to be yeah. probably pretty good. If it's done with electric lighting, no, probably not. No matter what, I totally I'm agree afraid. because the magnitude of difference between the light outside and the light inside is so enormous that. Intensity really is the factor that I don't think you can safely recreate inside uh, without creating not a ton of that. glare and weirdness. Not what did you say? It's, it's not just that. It's view has a lot to do with that. Sure. Uh, this sure. was research done by uh, Lisa Heshron uh, probably 20 years ago uh, where they determined that the view out, out the window or out the skylight even uh, was what helped with the happiness of, of people in the space, the productivity and everything else, which doesn't take long to make the leap from that to you know, the type of circadian wellness we're talking about. Yeah, you just so, have to look at real estate prices with good views mm -hmm. to know that view matters, the actually. Office, right, the corner office. Yeah, or like houses in, in, say, Vancouver with a view of the, of the ocean. I mean, come on, it's way more expensive to have a view. So I mean, oh, yeah. there, there's there's all manner of indications that that's that's key. Um, what I wanted to ask you is that if we're successful, so Jane and I are going to work on advocacy for this. We're going to do a lot of work on social media and then the podcast and even TikTok and Facebook. We're going to be hitting people with this message like crazy. I'm looking for a paradigm shift, Jim. I think uh, the paradigm shift has started with a shift away from electric light towards daylighting. You're seeing that. And I think people are going to pay for darkness too. I think you're going to see the lighting industry start to provide darkness to people as a, like a service or like a, as a lighting industry revenue play. You know, the sales guys start cooking it up because I, the, I, people are going to become aware of this and they're going to want it. How do we deliver that, Jim? Well, you know, one of the things I'm thrilled with is that nailed, uh, is undertaking this as a as a movement to, to educate the uh, the distributors. Um, you know, I I think and that's the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. Apparently, we say too many acronyms on this show. We got in trouble oh, from yes. one of our listeners, so I, I'm just gonna. That's okay. I'm gonna throw out the acronym there. So, but yes, carry on. Sorry about that. Um, let me silence my phone here. Um, the uh, the fact that the now now you explain what the acronym means i'm going to say nailed uh <laughs> nailed is uh, starting a program to teach distributors because distributors are probably design you know 30 40 percent of the lighting that gets designed the electrician walks in and says i need to do this and the distributor is expected to come up with an answer and a product and, you know, the, the product that's sitting there on the shelf is the most likely one he's going to specify, he or she. I don't want to be sexist about this either. There's a lot of women who work in distribution. Um, so let's just say the distributor is going to say, well, I have this on the shelf. Well, yeah, but the stuff that's on the shelf, especially the cheap stuff, oh, my God, it's made in China. They don't care. They don't care about light pollution. They don't have, they don't doesn't enter into the equation. And the inexpensive stuff is going to cause light pollution. It's going to be 5,000K. It's going to be blue. It's going to have a lens shooting light straight into the sky. You know, the worst beam of light is the one going you know, directly horizontal. Yeah. Because it goes through all that atmosphere before it gets out into uh, space. And it's atmospheric 
molecules where Rayleigh scattering occurs that causes the sky to glow. When you go straight up, you're hitting the least number of molecules. You're still hitting molecules, but you hit, you hit space sooner. So the worst one is going horizontal, and they're selling stuff, you know, up-tilted floodlights and wall packs and stuff like that. A little bit of, of education and a little bit of care, and we can reverse the trend that is causing probably, you know, half of the lake pollution. If we change street lighting, parking lot lighting, wall packs, you know, we, we get just to those things and floodlights. Oh, my God. And just to those Absolutely. things. Absolutely. You know? But those, those lighting types are, are honestly, they feel, a lot of times those installations feel like knee-jerk reactions. They're, because they're so easy to put up they, and they illuminate so broadly um, that it's a knee-jerk reaction to the idea of more light is safer and that um, if you throw a floodlight on, then you're good. Um, you don't have to worry the, uh, about being more light is, that's, that's That's a huge problem. More light is safer, baloney. And more to the point, blue light is more light than warm-toned light is, is also baloney. And, uh, you know, we work on a lot of street lighting systems these days because everybody's replacing them with LEDs. Most of them are doing it wrong. They're putting in, you know, 4,000 K lights and they're doing it fairly carelessly. And, you know, they're not even, they're not even checking the light levels most of the time. Whatever was there is what they're matching. Well, you know, IES got pretty good publication, you know, RP8, pretty good publication. And, but using it is not easy because it's illuminating engineering. You're talking about uh, nits, candelas per square meter, luminance, mm -hmm. and foot candles. Well, you know, everybody thinks foot candles because that's all they know. So we've got a lot of, um, we need to encourage the development of expertise in that field. And we need to uh, teach those who want to become expert at it. And we have we've got a lot of work to do. So what do you think is the first step to getting the awareness and raising it? Well, I'm just, I need to date myself a little bit, but you know, I've been involved in a number of causes in the field of lighting. Um, the first cause I got involved with was energy efficiency. And, mm. uh, you know, I, I attended the very first uh, Earth Day uh, meeting, the very, the launch of Earth Day, I attended in Ann Arbor as a student, a uh, college student. That I'll tell you, I've, I've been around for a while. And um, <clears throat> since then, you know, I said, yeah, we have to do something. We have to do a lot of things. It also related a lot to my Boy Scout experiences. So, you know, the combination said, we got to, we got to, we got to do better. Look, you know, water pollution, air pollution, energy waste, you know, we, we have to do these things. And so that was my first cause. And I got involved in the development of California Title 24, ASHRAE IES 90.1. I was involved in those, in those processes. Um, but, you know, then the dark sky movement came along. And so, you know, these causes in, in, in my professional career, all, ultimately, they all relate back to one thing, which is because of its extreme diversity in so many ways, Lighting is never really caught on as an independent profession much. Okay, we True. know independent. It's always a lighting consultant. Yeah. yeah. What's a lighting consultant? Well, how, do you have enough money to buy a card that says lighting consultant on it? You're a lighting consultant. That's all it takes. And uh, <laughs> so I got involved with with the cause to create the NCQLP and the LC certification. And I served as the chairman of the very first test committee. We put together the first test and I was actually chair of that for three <clears throat> cycles that I was chairman of the certification committee before I rotated off. Um, this is all volunteer work. And I, I, so I think about it, geez, have I done a lot of that stuff? But it was important because my feeling was that finally we have a, a general 
certification in the industry that serves as a base. We all know we come from different educational backgrounds. Very few people get an applicable degree in lighting. I didn't. I have an electrical engineering degree. <clears throat> you know, yeah, people mine's have an interior, interior design. design. Yep, yeah. exactly. A lot of interior designers. You know, I, uh, my architects, certainly. Um, there, people come from theater. Probably one of the mm -hmm. most gifted lighting designers I ever worked with, who was part of my team in San Francisco, was late Ross D'Alessi. The guy just, he, he, he felt light. He was so gifted as a designer. Um, I learned a lot from him. I'm sorry he's gone. Uh, you know, Naomi Miller, architecture, MIT, uh, one of the most yeah, brilliant lighting people, you know, in the nation today. But at the other extreme, we've got a lot of educating to do because people are coming into lighting because it's a great field to be in. But they're coming into lighting from all over. And how do I get in? Well, you want to get in, get in. As opposed to, well, have you got the LC yet? And I'm disappointed we haven't embraced that. I really am. Uh, I have my LC. So it was a grueling exam, I will tell you. I did not finish that exam. I think it was like 400 questions in four hours, or it, it, I think it boiled down to 30 seconds a question. Um, and they're very tough questions, like case studies, you have to read a lot. Um, so I, I will tell you that I do know that the LC certification is revered still um, by a lot of people, but it's not necessarily commonplace. There aren't it isn't so far that I, I everybody has it. So I guess the the difficulty level is one thing that has kept it um, as a standard, which is good. Um, but you're right that yeah. people do come from different avenues. Yeah. Well, every about every ten years in our industry, the question comes up: Should lighting designers be licensed? I wrote my first article on this in Architectural Lighting Magazine in 1991. Boy, did that raise holy heck. But it served a purpose because it inspired IALD and IES to create the NCQLP and which led to the LC. What I'm disappointed in is that LC is not a prerequisite for just about anything. You don't have to hold an LC to become an IES member, to become an IALD member. You don't have to hold an LC for any of that. Or, or, to, or to start the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. <laughs> or to sell lighting equipment or, because, you know, it was intended that everybody have it, mm. that it was, you know, you would have it. You would have it, for example, because you're, you're a distributor. You and, know why I don't you know, have it? Because I don't need to don't, have it and I hate taking tests. That's why. It, it doesn't really – it wouldn't change what I do much because I, I, I avoid – consulting uh i don't feel right about like engaging in consulting with people i never have i sell stuff and um that's what it is and so i my my, my education is largely from the street like learning i know a lot about how lighting works like fixtures and i've installed thousands and in, of light fixtures in my career when i was younger and ballasts and you know, I was a I was a I was apprentice in my own company for a while, and I got on the lifts and went up and did all that sort of thing. So my my type of education is very hands on with it. Uh, mount, I've mounted lights on the sides of buildings many many times, changed lights in sixty foot poles. Um, so that's yeah. where that's. But the LC is but largely I, unnecessary. I, I'm going to come back at you and say so. I was involved as an expert in a case, okay. in which a a exploding metal halide light bulb mm. burned down an entire marina mm. uh, building that was full of yachts and antique cars and things like that. You know, the losses were, you know, measured in the, uh, you know, I think it was a hundred million dollars worth of stuff burned in that fire. And it was uh, the, the fire investigators said, well, you know, they, they tracked it back to an exploding metal halide bulb because there was someone who witnessed it. I thought we called that mm. non-passive failure. <laughs> oh, whatever you are. Non-passive failure. <laughs> yeah. as, as the expert in the case, uh, one of the things I pointed out was that 
this was a known phenomenon mm -hmm. yeah. because the the exploding bulb occurred, I think, probably 10 years ago. Well, it was well known that metal halide bulbs exploded and the distributor who sold the product didn't inform the, the, the buyer that, you know, they could buy a more expensive light bulb that was, you know, had internal protection to protect against that. Uh, they didn't offer them that. They sold them the cheapest thing, which was a, you know, an open metal halide high bay, 1,000 watt. And you know what makes that worse? It, like um, uh, online marketplaces like Amazon. There's literally no interaction between the customer and the vendor. We get, yeah, we so, get about 40 orders over marketplaces, eBay and Amazon a day. And we call yeah. a lot of them because a lot of people actually order a lot of UVC and black lights over them. And black lights are interesting, okay? Because there's black light and black light blue, right? Mm -hmm. And if someone takes a black light and puts it in a black light blue fixture, they may think, hey, that pink glow is kind of cool. I'm going to leave that like that, you know? But that's very dangerous. So we actually call. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. They, like, they might leave it because well, they kind of think laughing. it looks cool. I'm laughing because I did exactly that about 30 years ago. <laughs> but this is important, but I was concerned enough about UV that I that the lighting was indirect. I wanted that unique sort of pink purple glow, but I knew better than to expose people to black light. Mm -hmm. But people will That's order on Amazon, they'll type in the Amazon black light and they mm -hmm. think they're going right. to get like a, like the Halloween party nightclub black light blue but they end up with yeah. the black light so this is exact it's actually a lot of things in this business are getting worse not better jim like the way people interact with lighting the on on amazon marketplaces you have so many uncertified light bulbs for sale and like not even ul listed or csa approved being shipped you know i would say that a lot of them are fulfillment by the marketplace in fact you don't you understand what i mean that they're actually in that marketplace's warehouses and being shipped to people by that marketplace. I'm not going to say their name when I say that, but I think everyone knows who I'm talking about. So the, I think the problem with lighting, and we're, we kind of went away from Starving for Darkness, or we probably need Jane to bring us back home. But I yeah. think the problem's actually getting worse, Jane, with that, with that, in terms of consulting related to lighting. Totally. I get people calling me, friends calling me saying, you know, I need to get a light bulb on, uh, you know, an online marketplace, like, but I don't know what any of this stuff means. And I'm like, okay, all right, let me mm -hmm. walk you through it. But, uh, you know, because lighting is, uh, as we say, it's much more complicated than people may realize. Um, but Jim, I want to open this back up to you, which is that, uh, you know, when you imagined you were coming on Starving for Darkness, what did you think you were going to be talking about? And have we covered it? And if we haven't, what would you like to tell us about your views? Um, what did you imagine you would be talking about here in this forum? Well, knowing Michael and uh, having had many a great conversation with him, both on the record and off the record, I can tell you that, um, you know, I, uh, we, what did you call me once? You said, Freewheeling, freewheeling Jim Benya, brother. Freewheeling Jim Benya, yeah. for sure. <laughs> so our conversations have been always a little loose on uh, on format and uh, and topic. So I don't always prejudice <laughs> going into it. But what I I was thinking more about what I'd like to say about uh, dark skies and and the night. Uh, I said a little bit of it earlier. You know, it's 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 important to me personally, but I think it should be important to everybody more than more than people realize. I think it's it's they call it light pollution and it is pollution. I will just say and I think we've we've talked for an hour, so we don't want to go too long in courtesy to the listeners. So we'll have to have you on again. But I would say this, Jim, and I mean I'm just coming back to where I came from. I'm uh, I'm a sales guy at the end of the day. There is money in darkness, brother. I can see it. I can smell it. When I, I sell lighting for a living, I had light bulbs in my house when I was a kid. The whole time I grew up, my dad ran a business from our house. Light bulbs were everywhere. 
I can see with these two eyes right here that every single outdoor light fixture is back in play if we get this thing right. And so the industry has to learn. Jim, find me a, a lighting manufacturer that has a dark sky outdoor lighting section on their website. It's not, that doesn't exist. Okay? That's not ready. That's not out I'll there yet. I'll send you a link. Okay, great. We've been working. We've been working with a couple of manufacturers, a couple of ESCOs and other folks amongst our clientele to help steer them in the right direction. We have one lighting manufacturer in particular we've been working with uh, that uh, they said they said pretty much in their own words what you just said. There's, money in, money, there's in. money in darkness, brother. There is money in darkness. And it's time for... Well, it's, not it's not just darkness. Because we have, we are going to have to have light, sure. and there's going to be there's going to be lightness too, but done properly. Exactly. For example, for example, um, I'm having done full scale mockups and tested these. I think 2200K white LED is probably the best street light color and outdoor lighting color we should be using today. There are more environmentally uh, impactful or less environmentally impactful sources like uh, amber, for example, PC amber um, and others. I'm talking about practical sources now. We've done work with narrow band amber, but that's, uh, mm. that's not efficacious enough for these applications. But PC amber, we work with, work with 2200K, 1900K. 2200K should become the standard for yep. residential streets. Excuse me, in a lot of outdoor lighting. Um, you know, 3000K is actually too high for me. Yep, 2700K, we, have, we, we, we threw a fit and got the city of Davis to put 2700K on residential streets seven years ago when nobody was doing it. Davis was really one of the first, and it was because... Deborah and I went down to a city council meeting and just raised hell. <laughs> and sometimes that's that's the way you get things done. Mm -hmm. But you have to be in a community that will listen to you raising hell. That's not always easy. Mm. So, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, I see, you know, getting back to your point, there's terrific opportunity mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be as hard as it sounds. Um, I'm, hmm. I'm very enthusiastic about DLC creating a QPL, Qualified Products List, for those of you who aren't using shorthand, <laughs> creating a Qualified Products List that meet criteria. So you say, I just want something off the QPL, and then any distributor can say, fine, here, I look it up on the QPL, here, I've got it right here. Mm -hmm. Done deal. Okay, if we can get it to that level, and that's what it's really all about, then we can really move forward because then the information will be readily available. The frankly, there's a lot of snake oil out there mm -hmm. in selling lighting equipment. Always has been, probably always will be. But we can min mitigate that because what what DLC proved is that a central clearinghouse and vetting process, the same vetting process for everybody, really works. It does tend to control the junk, okay? And having a QPL for dark sky is going to make it so easy for any distributor, any contractor, anybody online if they, mm. if they care. The question mm -hmm. is, can we force people to care? That's, that's going to be... That's where the ordinance idea you know, gets refreshed. I don't like the word force. You know, I, I don't like that word. Words are very important to me, like which words people use. I don't like the word force. I like the word persuade and convince. Um, I like the word nudge. I like, um, I, I like regulation. Like I think smart regulation, that is enforced, Jim. So many regulations go unenforced, which is, makes things worse. So I don't know if we need to force people as much as, as make them aware of the issue. See, the thing about humans is people say humans never change or they're so slow they change. Humans will change super fast, actually. 
Like there's a lot of evidence that humans can change very, very quickly as long as you make them aware of the problem. Like say, hey, there's a contagious infectious disease out there that could kill you, so do something about it. And humans will change their behavior very, very quickly. Um, so we have to make them aware. Uh, how we do that, um, you know, that's, we're doing it right now. That's what we're, that's what this, that's what starving for darkness is about. That's why it's not called the dark skies show because there's actually a lot of the, the, the dark starry sky is part of the conversation. It's traditionally been the only part of the conversation, but there, we think there's way more to it than that. Jane is particularly passionate about wildlife. You had mentioned the birds. So, um, there's so many aspects to this that need to be explored and there's actually experts out there on all these aspects and we're going to interview them. We're going to mm -hmm. bring them on the show. We're going to cut their stuff into social media clips. We're going to put it on TikTok. We're going to put it on Facebook. We're going to put it on Instagram. We're going to fund it and we're going to distribute it out there to everybody in the world to see. Good and feedback. so that, Good yeah, that, that's your, what we're, your, we're your, doing. Your approach is changing our industry for the better. And I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you, Jim. I'll tell you that. Jim Benya, thank you for being a guest on Starving for Darkness, my friend. Let's all, let's all hope we get there as fast as possible. Thank Amen. you for having me. <laughs> thank you for listening for, to Starving for Darkness. Before you go, though, I want you to listen to Greg Eric, co-host of the Get a Grip on Light, Lighting podcast, and I talk about the magicians. Yeah. Down at Evluma, Greg, E-V-L-U-M-A dot com, rethinking LED in all directions, brother. That's right, and they're doing that with their OmniMax. We talked about it at the beginning, but yeah. who has 2K? Nobody. They have 2K. They have 22K, 24K, 27K. All the twos covered. If you need Keep a 2K it in the twos, brother. anywhere, you've got it covered with this. And then they have multiple wattages, and it's got that surge protection we talked about, 10-year warranty, photo control, fail-safe, hands down, the best cob on the market. That surge protection is the bomb, man. Just not getting blown out, covering off the photo cell, keeping it things real magic inside that fixture for you keeping it low on the kelvin temperature side but also offering applications for other other color temperatures as well rethinking led in all directions this whole industry needs a reset and i'm so happy that evluma is on the cutting edge of that go to evluma.com